Whether fact or fiction, all films begin in the mind. After that, where your imagination takes you and where your idea ends up is anyone's guess. Yet for all those possibilities, there is but one certainty. In order to get there, you will need to either scribble away with your pen, hammer away at your typewriter, or silently apply your thoughts via a touchscreen. I'm pretty sure that an entire script has already been texted in from a smartphone. Yet even though everyone knows that a good script is the bedrock for a good movie, it is curious that when a film has as its central character an actual screenwriter, they are often subject to all manner of abuse. Such abuse in fact that you might be tempted to think that such films are less the imagination of a writer in love with the art, and more the sadistic machinations of a despotic producer. You think you're the only writer that can give me that Barton Fink feeling? I got 20 writers under contract! I can ask for a Fink-type thing from! But at least the Coen brothers let Barton Fink survive the tirades of studio boss Jack Lipnick and the rampages of serial killer Charlie Meadows. By contrast, barely 38 minutes into Robert Altman's The Player, struggling screenwriter David Kahane is attacked and drowned by studio executive Griffin Mill. Let's forget this. So stop all the postcard shit. I don't I write postcards! I write for wrong, wrong, okay? No, you're wrong! Buddy, you're in over your head. That's why you're losing your job. And then what are you going to do? Huh? I can write. What can you do? Mind you, even before Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard kicks into gear, another struggling screenwriter, Joe Gillis, has been shot to death by faded movie star Norma Desmond. You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion, with two shots in his back and one in his stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. Evidently, many screenwriters hold themselves and their art in low esteem. In Spike Jones's adaptation, Charlie Kaufman has split into two characters, twins, Charlie and Donald, both of whom are subject to considerable mockery and scorn. The script I'm starting, it's about flowers. Oh. Nobody's ever done a movie about flowers before. So, so there are no guidelines. What about flowers for Algernon? Well, no, that's not about flowers. Oh, okay. And it's okay. not a movie. I'm sorry, I never saw it. But those writers work in the film industry. What about writers elsewhere? Think of biopics about real-life writers such as Shakespeare, Jane Austen or Karen Blixen and you will see precious little time afforded to their actually sitting down and writing. That's because the act of writing itself is not an easy one to cinematize. For the most part, writing is a solitary, if not sedentary, activity. It is far more interesting for an audience to see another type of writer at another kind of keyboard. or a painter working on a canvas. There you have movement and rhythm, not to mention melody. Much nicer than these rude noises. Which is why movies about writers spend more time away from the desk than they do stuck in the cold confines of the lonely garret. But not all writers retreat to that lofty tower. You have investigative journalists upholding the rights of a free press. And that leads us to the likes of Warren Beatty's Reds Todd McCarthy's Spotlight, and perhaps the greatest movie about print journalism, Alan J. Pakula's All the President's Men. Yes? Mr. McGregor. Yes? This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, the reporters of the Boston Globe, and Jack Reed were all in pursuit of the same thing. Truth. 
So here, typing is a moral imperative. Which is to say that for some journalists, the keyboard is a power tool of justice. But to others, it's something else. Take Charles Foster Kane. Deep into Orson Welles' masterpiece, Jedediah Leland writes up a scathing but honest review of Susan Alexander's debut performance at the Chicago Opera House. Drunk, Leland slumps unconscious at his desk, and Kane steps in to complete the review of his wife's disastrous recital. Hello, Jedediah. Hello, Charlie. I didn't know we were speaking. Sure, we're speaking, Jedediah. You're fired. From this, you might think that the typewriter is a conveyor of truth. But it can also trade in gossip. And for that, we must go to the very film that invented the word paparazzi, Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita. Chronicling the decadent nights and moribund days in 1960 Rome, Marcello Rubino can't help but be sucked into its moral vacuum. But for all his faults, at least Rubino isn't vindictive. That vice can be found in Alexander McKendrick's classic noir, The Sweet Smell of Success. Mr. Falco, whom I did not invite to sit at this table tonight, is a hungry press agent and fully up to all the tricks of his very slimy trade. Match me, Sydney. J.J. Hunsecker uses the typewriter to inject into his gossip column rumour, innuendo and alternative facts so laced with arsenic they can end a person's career. The bitter nastiness and angry invective doesn't stop there. In Neil Jordan's masterful adaptation of Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, Morris Bendrix sits at his typewriter with the sole purpose of venting his spleen. But what initially appears to be a confession to no one in particular quickly reveals itself as a damning diatribe aimed at God. This is a diary of hate. Damnation of a different kind is what Paul Sheldon is trying to escape in Rob Reiner's adaptation of Stephen King's Misery. You. You dirty bird. How could you? She can't be dead. Misery Chastain cannot be dead. There he is held hostage to his own success when his number one fan, Annie Wilkes, holds him captive to write a sequel to a novel where he had killed off the heroine. In the finale, Paul doesn't so much turn the tables on Annie as much as he turns his typewriter on her. But what happens when your own typewriter turns on you? In David Cronenberg's effective adaptation of William H. Burroughs' supposedly unfilmable Naked Lunch, William Lee uses several different models of typewriter, but encounters a serious problem when he discovers his Remington noiseless portable isn't so noiseless. Uh, Bill, could you do me a favor? What? I want you to type a few words into me. Words that I'll dictate to you. Whoever would have thought that writing could affect your sanity. In Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining, Jack Torrance heads up into Colorado's Rocky Mountains, but swiftly descends into insanity when he volunteers to take care of the Overlook Hotel during its winter season. 
Torrance attempts to write his novel on his Adler Universal, but the more he tries, the more he gets lost inside the maze of his own mind. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Curiously, both the Shining and Misery plots take place deep within snowbound mountains. Could their locations resemble the terrifying visions of every writer? The blank page. In Atonement, Joe Wright's Oscar-winning adaptation of Ian McEwan's novel, Robbie Turner types up a unique declaration of love to Cecilia Tallis. He starts out trying to write a note of apology on his royal number 10, but quickly loses the run of himself, and unfortunately for Robbie, his naughty note then falls into the wrong hands. And with the contents later used as evidence against him in an adjoining accusation, he is sent away to prison. Evidently, the typewriter can be the source of embarrassing, if self-incriminating jokes, secrets, rumours and gossip. Beyond secrets, rumour and gossip, you have outright lies and straight-up deception. Antti Mangella's reworking of Patricia Highsmith's thriller The Talented Mr Ripley has Tom Ripley using Dickie Greenleaf's Olivetti Laterra 22 to compose Dickie's suicide note. So much for idle gossip, malicious rumours and outright lies. What about typing errors? Or bureaucratic foul-ups? In Terry Gilliam's Brazil, a misprint results in Archibald Bottle being arrested, interrogated and killed by the state police. That is your receipt for your husband. Thank you. And this is my receipt for your receipt. Gilliam's Brazil was a satirical vision of an Orwellian state. So now let's look at a real 1984. That was the year in which Florian Henkel von Donnersmark set his Oscar-winning The Lives of Others. East German playwright Georg Dreymann is under surveillance of Stasi agent Gerd Wiesler. Wiesler has wired Dreymann's apartment and as he listens in, he types up his notes for his superiors and the resulting dossier is then used against Dreymann. Years later, after the collapse of the communist regime, Dreymann is then granted access to the dossier compiled against him. Reading it, he then turns to his own typewriter and expresses his experience. His resulting novel is then purchased by Wiesler and in that way the typewriter is transformed from a weapon of statewide tyranny into one of personal freedom. So far we've been focusing on a certain type of writing, a writing that all literate people can read. But there is another type of writing that is comprehensible to only a select few. I'm talking about writing code. And the interesting thing about writing code is that where the other types of writing I've mentioned, memoirs, diaries, confessions, reports and dossiers, all account for events that have already happened. Writing code is not about what happened. It is about opening up the infinite possibilities 
of what has yet to happen. Give each girl a base rating of 1400, and at any given time, girl A has a rating RA and girl B has a rating RB. To finish off, permit me to focus on two films that do not revolve around typewriters, but nonetheless contain two sharp sequences featuring the machine. Both attest to the sanctity of the written word. After nearly traumatising the audience with the D-Day landing sequence that marks the opening to Save a Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg then cuts to a location far away from the front where the administrative part of the war is being conducted. Here, a typing pool of secretaries are conveying the commands and orders of the generals. These aren't just words they're typing. These are actions, and actions have consequences. The secretaries have to be quick and their fingers need to be precise because one mistake could send a division in the wrong direction. Spielberg's camera tracks along the aisles between the tables and settles on one woman who pauses before thoughtfully checking back to a page she has already finished. She thumbs through the sheets checking for details. Then another sheet, more details. Yet another sheet. Ashen, she gets up and walks silently into an office. She hands the documents to her superior and reading them, he heads into another office to present them to his superior. This isn't an office dispatching orders. Here, the typewriter announces death. Dear Mr. Brian Boyd, no doubt by now you have received full information about the untimely death of your son. No Adam. words of mine can ever relieve the out that you have felt his loss tremendously. He was a fine soldier and he believed very strongly in what It's no secret anymore that we were involved in one of the most important operations of this war. I was the one who held us all together. In Schindler's List, it initially appears that Spielberg presents the same thing. But by the end, he is doing something completely different. The film begins shortly after the Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939, and immediately the Jewish population is ordered to register with the occupying authority. Their names are taken, lists are compiled, and the engine of the Holocaust starts up. As the cloud of extermination descends across European Jewry, Oskar Schindler's conscience is awoken, and he begins compiling his own list. Here, the typewriter gathers life. The list is an absolute good. The list is life. All around its margins lies the comfort. And by bookending the story with these actions, Spielberg shows us that the written word can be both lethal and liberating.